0: Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, uh, you are so good to us and uh, we thank you for the time to gather together. Thank you for the the joy again to be able to to teach. Thank you for the the, the church of the Miracle Spring and uh, the opportunity to to be here and for myself also to teach. Lord, this is such a challenging passage so help us to learn, help us to be humble and uh, to encourage one another. Help me to explain what the uh, I believe to be true of your words, that uh, we would have uh, learning and uh, understanding of each other, and Lord, uh, if indeed, as I believe it to be so, the passage is about the second return of Jesus Christ, may we rejoice in his return and uh, be ready. Amen. Amen. Okay, so the passage is called the Olivet Discourse. This is the discourse that Jesus pronounced when he was on the Mount of Olive. And so that's why it's called the Olivet Discourse. It's uh, found in Mark 13, and it's also found in Matthew 24, 25, and Luke uh, 21. And so uh, in the handout that you have, you'll see that uh, I have prepared what's called a, a harmony of the Gospels. This is basically, when you have a passage in Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, they are called the Synoptic Gospels, and uh, oftentimes, if you have one section in in Matthew that talks about something, it will have a parallel passage in the other two Gospels. And so, uh, over here, we have the three the three uh, Gospels, and we have the Olivet Discourse. So you'll see, it's quite fascinating. And that's really how I went about studying this text: is what are the insights that I can get about? this passage in Luke, and then in Mark, and then in, in Matthew, because whatever I believe it teaches, it has to do justice to all three texts. You can sometimes have a view, and it works really well in Matthew, but it just doesn't align with Mark. That cannot be right. And, uh, and sometimes you have something that's said in, in, uh, in Luke, and then in Mark, he paraphrases, and it really helps you to see, oh, so this is a synonym, a synonym for something else and uh, it helps us to understand. Um, So you will see, we will basically read Mark 13 and as we study, uh, I will be um, saying, hey, uh, check out the Mark, the the version of Matthew, it says uh, this, and we glean more insights. Um, This passage is basically, in my understanding, it concerns two things, it concerns something that we will see called the tribulation. And then there is the coming of the Son of Man. Those two things. And uh, in First uh, Peter, it says that the prophets of the Old Testament, they, they prophesied about the coming of... Christ, the first coming, and and then once they had written it down, they would just look at what they wrote and try to figure out, the text says, what was the time and the persons or the circumstances that was uh, concerning what they wrote. So can you imagine uh, Isaiah writing Isaiah 53, and then, he will bear the iniquity of many? What is that about? When? Who? Who? So they thought, no, oh, that can't be the Messiah. It has to be Israel. Because they couldn't conceive that Israel, that the Messiah would be cut off. And, and so when it comes to that text, we basically get a lesson of humility where we think, they should have known. Like, it's a piece of cake. It's Jesus, right? He died on the cross. How could they not see it? But, but it was not so easy to see it, for one. And then two, they didn't have the retrospect to look and see, oh, that's what it meant. And so for them, it was hard to know the time and the circumstances of people. So here you go again. Now, this is a passage that's a a prophecy that's future from the time of Jesus speaking this discourse. And then today, Christians are really having different views. What is the time of the tribulation? What is the time of the coming of the Son of Man? Who is the Son of Man? Is it Jesus Christ in, in person as? the second coming in person or is he Christ coming in in a, in a judgment way where he's not actually personally coming and what are the details of the circumstances and even the timeline specifically to make it, to make, to make it even more difficult you have two paths here you yeah. have one path that's called the beginning of sorrows or the birth pains these are the beginning of birth pains or also birth pains and then there's another part that's called the Great Tribulation. And so you have all kinds of views, and that's really part of the introduction, to show that it's hard. So there is a, I was listening to many teachers this week, and, and uh, MacArthur writes that uh, the interpretation of the Olivet Discourse, quote unquote, uh, and is not an easy undertaking. And MacArthur, he's, he's someone with a lot of experience. And he says, that's not easy. You have R.C. scroll when he taught the series on um, the Olympic discourse in Mark 13, he said that you have all kinds of uh, um, difficult issues in this passage. And Alistair Beck says that this is a theological minefield. When you step on Mark 13, you know, this passage is this. This one is this. Oh, this is hard. It talks about this over there. It's really hard to see what this is about. So, I'm going to tell you what I believe the passage teaches. But everyone struggles with this text. It's hard. So, what are the views? Well, there is the view that there is the first coming of Christ with the cross, and then in 70 A.D. there was the destruction of Jerusalem. The Jews were not, were killed about a million and the city was destroyed, temple was burned down, the stones were all separated, and, uh, and the Jews went into exile. A lot of what, that sounds like what we read in the passage. And then there is the second coming, when Jesus comes back, the second coming. And before that, one view holds, which is mine, that there is a seven year tribulation that precedes the coming of Christ and has miraculous signs. So here is how the text is interpreted. Christ will say, don't be deceived, there will be many tribulations and wars and rumors of wars, and then the abomination of desolation with great tribulation, and then the Son of Man. So you see those three things. So this is how people interpret it. Some people say, there are three views. Some people say, it's all 70 AD. Everything in Mark 13 is 70 AD. So this first view is 100% past 7080. Everything in the text is 78. The third view is 100% of what is written is future. And that's going to be my view. And I actually flip flop between this view and view two several times. Mm-hmm. But now I believe that's the view. And the second view is it's a hybrid some is 70 a.d and some is future you see that so there's a chronology in the text it seems and some say well this is 70 a.d and this is future some say the whole thing is future and some say the whole thing is past now some people who say that the whole thing is past they are called uh full preterists and and those are people that we consider heretics because they say christ has already come back we are already in the new heavens and the new earth there is already no more death, and they allegorize all the text about the second coming and the resurrection, and that's basically denying that Jesus will come back. So that's heresy. So, but here is the interesting fact is that people who are not full preterists who believe everything has already happened, but who are partial preterists, so they believe that a lot of the prophecies were fulfilled in 70 AD, like is Pro, yet see that Mark 13 is fully in 70 AD. So even the people who are there, they have variation there. But okay, so is it 100% past, 100% future, or a mix of the two? Now, here is how people see a mix of the two. Some people will say, all the tribulation was here. And then the second coming is here. So today is a little bit special. We have a text that makes it more of a teaching uh, session. But, so some people say the tribulation is all in the first century and the second coming is all in the future some people say this beginning of sorrows is the church age and the great tribulation is here it would actually go all the way to half and then this is here so you see all those views and we're back to first peter what are the times where because I understand the famine, an earthquake, you know, uh, the temple, but when? So we're going to spend most of our time thinking about how can we possibly have any confidence that we know when a particular section belongs. When you listen to people, if, in fact, when you read books, they will say, this belongs to the church age, and they do not give any reason. Sometimes they do, but oftentimes they will have no reason, they just say, this is there, and, and there's maybe a couple of arguments, but usually it's more like, well, it looks like it should be in the church age. But can we actually have like, objective reasons in the text that help us to see where this text really is intended to belong? So that's the idea. Surely it looks like a lot of things we see today. There are earthquakes today. There are walls today. But the point is, is God intending this passage to belong only in the future, only in the past, or is it a mixed in between any questions so far no no questions okay all right so this is so so large I've decided to go with this strategy I'm gonna be showing that this this is how I studied the text for myself I said okay there are so many things that are written there beginning of sorrows it says the coming of the Son of Man and on and on and on how can I actually know if there is one part that I know for a fact is future. And so I looked at this passage the Son of Man. So here is the strategy and then we'll walk through it. I'm gonna show that the coming of the Son of Man is actually the second coming. I'm gonna show that this is future. Okay. And then we are gonna see that the text actually links the coming of the Son of Man, with the tribulation, in the immediate context. So you will see that the text says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, I saw the Son of Man. In those days, the Son of Man. So we will see that it's tied, it's the same generation. And so what happens? If you see that the Son of Man is future, and this is tied, then where is that going? In the future as well. And then what we will see is that Every single one of the terms that are used about the tribulation that describe what the tribulation is like, we will see that every single one of them, they actually, with the whole study of scripture, they actually all belong to the future. So we will be sure that the whole thing is future. We will be seeing that it's the seven-year tribulation that precedes the coming of Christ. All right, so let's start with the text. So we're going to read Mark 13. We're starting on this uh, uh, page one on the very left column. I have some subtitles in gray that are not inspired, but that help to see what's going on. And interestingly, all the views agree by those subtitles. So they just help to see what the subsection is about. So Jesus foretells the destruction of the temple, Mark 13. And he came out of the temple. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? They will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Let's stop here and let me comment. So if you look at the harmony... We see first that Jesus left at the temple. And it's really almost like a, an act that denotes that now God is leaving the temple. The glory of God has departed. And the judgment is coming. And then we see that the, um, the disciples say wonderful stones, wonderful buildings. In Luke it says they are adorned and it notes the noble stones and the offerings. And so the temple was actually coated with gold. It was extended by Herod. And from afar, it looked so shiny in the sun that people could not look at it. And usually when people comment on that text, they tend to say, oh, wow, the temple was amazing. That's uh, really impressive. But from the context, It seems to me that actually Jesus is not pleased with what he sees. Let me explain. You know what happened just before the discourse? There's Matthew 23, where Jesus is blasting the Pharisees. He blasts them, and he says, You devour widows' houses. You are whitewashed tombs. And for the whole chapter, he says, You are evil. And at the end, he says, Your house is left desolate, and you will not see the Son of Man, until you say, Blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord. So, right before He judges them, not only that, right before, in all three Gospels, there is the widow who has no money. She has nothing left. And she gives her offering. And and actually, this is not a, a teaching on giving. She has been exploited by the religious leaders who are telling the poor to give all they have. And that's not without reason that Jesus, just before that happened as well, he said that the temple is a den of thieves. And so now, the, the disciples, they say, look at all the offerings. And at the time, actually, they were uh, gold um, items that were given by Herod and many other people that were, worth, that, were, that were worth a fortune. So you realize that this temple is having so many rich things that are looking amazing and offerings. And the offerings are just looking nice over there while the poor are dying of starvation when the temple was sacked the uh, the romans took the gold from the temple and it replenished all the money that was necessary for the army and they paid for the coliseum the building of the coliseum with all the gold they took from the temple which gold was useless except to look nice so now if you look at history you will know in many uh, parts of the history including in the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, that people who were poor were exploited to build magnificent buildings where you have gold-plated everywhere, but you have no worship for God, and the poor are left suffering. So they look at this and they are impressed that Jesus is not impressed. Jesus says, those stones, they are coming down. And if we look at the parallel passage, we see that it's actually, and when we go to the next section, verse three, As he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So they want to know when. Same question we always have when we look at prophecy. When is that supposed to happen? And when you look at the parallel passages, you see that there are three questions. Three questions there is the destruction of the temple and the question is when and then what's the second question you can find it right there yeah what will be the sign okay the sign the sign of what? of the coming of the son of man and then what's the third question the sign of the end of the age those are the three questions they have for indeed they thought when this present temple is destroyed Christ will come, and it will be the end of the world, the end of this age, and the kingdom will be ushered. If we look at parallel passages, it says that they thought, in Luke, it says they thought that the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So they thought, okay, so this is all happening right now in in our generation. Uh, And so that's their question. Now, we'll see the answer of Jesus Christ. (coughs) And Jesus began to say to them, Let me take my phone so I can track the time. (coughs) See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of walls and rumors of walls, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nations will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains be on your guard for they will deliver you over to councils and they will you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over do not be anxious beforehand what you will say but whatever is given to you in that hour but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated for my name's sake. By all. Or by all the nations, as the parallel text says. Thirteen. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Then there is the abomination of desolation. We turn to page three. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Be on God. But be on God. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, note the passage in Mark, right next column. It says immediately after the tribulation of those days. So let's go back to uh, Mark 24. its lesson as soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves you know that summer is near so also when you see these things taking place you know that he is near at the very gate truly i say to you this generation will not pass away until all these things take place heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away but concerning that day and that hour no one knows Even the angels in heaven, not even the angels in heaven, nor the sun, but only the Father. Be on God, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey, when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So, we will start by finding out whether or not the passage is about the second coming of Jesus. I think we would all agree, if indeed this passage is about the return of Jesus, we want to understand that correctly, and we want to rejoice in that. And so I have um, several reasons on page one that explain why this passage indeed talks about the second coming of Jesus Christ. So the first reason is that the Greek term, you know when it says you will see the Son of Man coming? The Greek term for coming is the parousia. It's the Greek term. And all the instances of the New Testament for parousia, they talk about bodily presence. So Paul would say, for example, I'm sending to you uh, Titus and other people and they they are parousia they are coming to you and many other passages including passages that are indisputed about the second coming use the same term so Jesus must have come in person now everyone agrees Jesus did not come in person in 70 AD so that means it's a passage about the future the second argument for why this is indeed Jesus is the plain language of the text you see it says they will see the son of man coming he is near at the very gate. The parable, the master of the house will come. And then it says in in, uh, in Luke, it says that people will stand in front of the Son of Man and they will be judged. Then the third reason is that it's actually a quote from Daniel 7, 13-14. through 14. It says in Daniel 7 that the Son of Man will be on the cloud and he will come to the Father and he will receive the kingdom. And then right there, obviously, this is uh, the person of Jesus Christ who is coming at the end of the world in the context. The third reason is that the fourth reason is that it talks about false Christ. You see, it says false Christ, false Christ will come, and they will do signs and they will talk to people and they will deceive them. So this this uh, warning best contrasts with an actual coming of Jesus in person to contrast with the false ones. Fifth, the events with his coming, things that never happened in the past. The angels gather the elect. That didn't happen in 17. The powers of the heaven will be shaken. That also did not happen. It says in, in uh, Matthew 24:25 that it says, "He will come and then he will sit on his glorious throne and he will judge the nations." Is he actually going to sit on the throne? Yes, he will. And so he will actually be coming as well in the same very presence. The next one is that he judges the nations. And bear in mind that the passage actually talks about the judgment of the sheep and the goats where people are sent to hell, which is definitely the judgment of the end times. Now, the other reason is that it's a global event. Look at Luke 21, 25. It says, it's a judgment that comes on all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. So the people who say it happened in 70 AD, well, they say the judgment was on Israel. But it says here, on those who dwell on the whole earth, and in case we have any doubts, it also says distress of nations. So what happened in 70 AD is that the nations gathered against Israel. And who was in distress? Israel. But here it says distress of nations. How can that be? That's not 70 AD. But the second coming, we know that the Bible says people will have distress everywhere as God judges the world just before Christ comes back. And then it says, no one knows that day or hour. But that seems to be against the idea that Jesus uh, was telling them that within their, their generation, he was going to come back because he doesn't know the day or the hour. And the parallel passage talks about season. So even that uh, would imply that he didn't know the season. He just knows it's happening in the future when he talks about it. He doesn't know when. And then in Luke 21, 28, it says, um, you will see the Son of Man coming. Your redemption is near. There was no redemption in 70 AD. The Jews were slaughtered. There was no redemption. But again, for the second coming, there is redemption. When you look at the parables, uh, Reason 9, centered on Jesus' return and blessings for the saints, look at what it says. The kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins. You know, they are like the foolish and the wise, and then they prepare to see the bridegroom. Well, did they actually see the bridegroom? No, they did not if it's 70 AD. But if it's the second coming, yes, they will meet the bridegroom. Or what about the, uh, the, um, parable of the, 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 the different parables about the man going on a journey? It says he goes on a journey to get a kingdom, and then he lets servant take care of his business on earth, and then he will come back. So he actually comes back at the end of the world, and he did not in 70 AD. Then there is the analogy of the days of Noah. It says there will be uh, global destruction in the days of Noah, God saved a small portion of humanity and there was global destruction. Again, it best fits the end of uh, history. It says, until the flood came and swept them all away, so would it be um, with the coming of the Son of Man. Now, look at this one. Very important. In Luke 17, 30, It's a parallel passage It talks about the very same uh, persecutions and walls. And it says the Son of Man will be coming. And then it says the revealing of the Son of Man. In other words, the coming of the Son of Man, the parousia of the Son of Man, is equated in Luke as the revealing of the Son of Man. And the Greek word for revealing is apocalypto and this word you can track it in the New Testament and you'll find it used for example of the antichrist that we are going to see in the passage and look the text says this in 2nd Thessalonians 2 let no one deceive you in any way sounds very familiar to what we just read for that day will come will not come the day of judgment that's the context of the passage the end times the very last moment before Jesus comes unless rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed Apocalypse the son of description, destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God and object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So the two Apocalypto must be, they must be the same. What's that? What is the page? That's the page one, and we are on number 11. So the argument is this. You saw in Mark 13, we read when the abomination is revealed, and he... He, it says he, it's a man, it's a person. He is uh, in the holy place. And then here we have, and then if you look at the parallel passage, it says, right? So let me look at this. And So that's on page three. um, Page three, verse 14. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. So it's a he. He's standing. He's doing something that's an abomination. And then in Matthew it says... He's standing in the holy place, which is the temple. And right there, in Thessalonians, it tells us that this person is called the son of destruction. He's, uh, he's called the man of lawlessness. He's uh, also revealed, Apocalypto. And again, he he's takes a seat in the temple, and he wants to be worshipped. So, the same uh, coming that's bodily, definitely, for the Antichrist, must be the coming of Jesus in person. And now, the last uh, the, la- the um, The penultimate one, 12, the text matches Zechariah 14, 1 through 5. Let's read it. Behold, the day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. Pause right here. I will gather all nations against Jerusalem. Okay, so you look at page 3. Look at page 3. We just read the abomination of desolation in the temple. Look at the parallel passage in Luke 21. It says, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, this is the same type of language that we are reading in Zechariah 14. So we go back to page 1 and we are now reading verse 2. I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city will be taken and the house is plundered, and the woman raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on the day of battle. And on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem. And then we just uh, fast forward. There is an earthquake at the end of the verse, the passage it says, Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. So, if we go back to the coming of the Son of Man on page on page 3 you see it says the Son of Man, the coming of the Son of Man and then uh, in the in the two of the accounts it says the angels come with him. So, there is a clear parallel with uh, Zechariah 14 where Jerusalem is surrounded by armies. The Lord comes. the women are uh, mistreated. People are taken into exile. You have this massive persecution. There is like a massive amount of the city that's destroyed. And then the Son of Man comes to do what? To rescue Jerusalem in Zechariah 14. And he comes with his army. So in Zechariah 14, the Son of Man comes and he rescues the Jews. But in 70 AD, of course, there was no rescue for the Jews. The Jews were massacred. And so we see that it aligns well with this. And this passage is undisputedly recognized as a future passage. So you see again that it speaks of the coming of Jesus in the future. Okay, so now we go to 13. That's the last uh, one for this particular part, And we are going to go to pages 9 and 10. That's the very last one. And uh, that's how I did it. I just looked at... What is said? what is the exact language in the Olivet discourse? And then uh, can I find any of these language expression linguistic expressions in passages about the second coming? And, and sure enough, I did. So you'll see that they match. so that's going to tell us that whatever is in view in the Olivet discourse is describing in fact the second coming of Jesus. You have found this uh, table. So the first one is that we see no one knows the day and it comes like a thief in matthew and then in first Th- thessalonians 5 which everyone agrees it's the second coming of christ it says concerning the times and the seasons brothers, brothers you have no need to have anything written to you for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the lord will come like a thief in the night i.e you don't know when it comes see that's the same language the second part it says stay awake be sober do not be drunk that's in all three pa- uh, gospels like uh, you can see in this column And in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, and 7, it says, let us keep awake, be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Same language. And the next section is clouds, eyes will see him, people will mourn, that's what we read. And then uh, if you look at, uh, for example, another part in the Gospel, in Mark 14, 62, it says, Jesus said to the disciples, to to the Jews, he said, I am, I am the Son of God, the Christ. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Uh, Again, 1 Thessalonians 5, which is about the rapture and the resurrection. It says, the coming of the Lord uh, together with them in the clouds. And you have revelation again on the clouds, uh, the the tribes. But even if you actually take, um, if you actually take again the book of Daniel, which talks about the very end. Son of Man coming on the clouds the same idea people will see uh, but again we just look at more things right to be sure because you can have some things that are the same in different eras but if you have everything that matches up it's like wow it must be the second coming of our dear Lord so the next page we read uh, actually we didn't read but it's in, it's in Matthew at the very end of Matthew 24 or 27 28 it says so will the coming of the Son of Man be and then it says Wherever the corpse is, there the vulture will gather. And when we see Revelation 19, we see that Christ comes. He has a robe a dipped in blood. And then the armies of heaven arrayed and finally are following with him. And then verse 21, the rest were slain. That's all the evil nations. And the birds were gorged with their flesh. Same language. Labor pains. We have the parallel passage in 1 Thessalonians 5 then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains. The angels, angels didn't come in 70 AD. They are said to come here. And of course, in Revelation 19, they come with him. The resurrection, now this one is important because you've noticed that Jesus, he said, the prophet Daniel talked about that. You remember that? He said, let the reader understand. It means two things. One, Jesus wants us to understand He doesn't want us to be confused. He says, let the reader understand. The second thing that it means is that what he was saying at the time was to be fulfilled beyond the initial audience for the ones that would be eventually reading. And then he talks about Daniel. Now look at Matthew 24, 46. When, as I said, he will sit on his glorious throne and he will judge the people. What happens? It says in verse 46, and they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And it's actually a direct allusion to Daniel twelve two, where it says, and many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, that's the resurrection, some to everlasting life, but others to shame and everlasting contempt. So the resurrection is implied in the Olivet Discourse. And of course, this is what we see in Revelation 20 when people are resurrected to reign with Christ. Then there is the kingdom, multiple times it says, he will sit on his glorious throne. You know the kingdom of God is near. It says they will inherit the kingdom. And this is, again, what is said in Daniel. Who can read for us this section, Daniel 7, 13, and 14? Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like Son of Man. And he came to the entrant of days, and was presented to people, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all people's nations and languages everlasting. So he's given a kingdom. And this kingdom is said to be also an everlasting kingdom, an everlasting dominion. And, of course, in Revelation 19, we have the return of Jesus with the tribulation. In 20, we have the kingdom. In 21, we have the eternal kingdom. Oh, we also have the deceiving signs. Okay, so with all of that, I cannot but conclude this is about the second coming of Jesus. Any questions uh, on that? Any, um, any? I know that some people disagree and it's fine at least we understand why other people see it differently, but any questions on that so far? No questions? Nope. To me it's very convincing. It's about Christ coming and that's our hope. Our hope that he's going to come back and he's going to make everything right. And it says, stay awake. Serve. Be ready. You have a unbelievable reward that awaits you when it comes. Now the question is this, how do you link the two, if at all? Are they separated? Or are they actually connected? And the answer is, they are connected. If you turn again to page um, um, three, look at what it says. There is the tribulation that we just heard about. And then it says, right here, who can read Matthew 24, 29 on page three? Right here. Yes, right here. Starts with immediately. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give us light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven, with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Thank you. So, the only hope, in my opinion, that we have to know when this is happening is to find time indicators in the text. Would you agree that this is saying that there is no gap between the coming of Christ and the tribulation? It says immediately, and we're not even reading Mark, which says immediately. Who says immediately all the time because he's fast-paced in his gospel? It's Matthew. He's telling us immediately, and then Mark says, "In those days," it's the same time. You see that? Now I'm going to tell you something. We go to uh, we go to page eight, and I'm going to answer two objections, which are very fair. So here's how it goes. The, objection, the two objections, they go like this. Jesus said, this generation will not pass away until all these things are fulfilled. He's talking to the generation of the contemporary Jews who are in front of him. And he's telling them, your generation, which is 40 years, is not going to die out until I come back and all those things happen. And so the Yahuwah goes. And it all happened in 70 AD. Because he says, this generation will not pass away until all these things that he has described, the tribulation, the difficulties, the coming, everything, is fulfilled. So that's the argument. And then the second argument is, people say, well, you see, he's talking to people in front of him, and he says, you, you will see, you will have this, you will have that. And then the argument is, well, he's obviously telling them, in the original context that they are going to experience those things, and so therefore it has to be all tied up to the first century. Those are good arguments. So what do you do with that? You can't just close your eyes and pretend, well, it looks like second coming. We have to have answers. So what are the answers? Well, the answers are this. The Greek term genea, which is translated generation and is very debated, it actually does mean a generation of 40 years. There's no fully around. People say, no, it doesn't mean this, it means this. So what does it mean? Well, we have to track down the usage. And the usage, for example, in Hebrews three nine and ten, it says this: "Where your fathers put me to the test, and saw my works for forty years." Do you know where those forty years were? What 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 is that about? It's without the context, but you probably know forty years, and it's talking about the what is it? So they are testing God for forty years. What is that about? You can turn there if you want, Hebrews 3. But it's basically the Jews testing God in the desert for 40 years, right? And then look at what it says. Therefore, I was provoked with that genea generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts, etc. Here's my point. The word genea is not always used of the people who are immediately receiving the, the writing or hearing the message genea means the generation the people of the context so here it's obviously a past generation the generation of jews Um, and then in the olivet discourse it's a future generation the generation that sees all the signs so that's the that's the argument so sometimes it's a present generation sometimes it's the past generation sometimes it's the future you just have to look at the context to be sure so the argument number two what about the you he says you well, the answer is that uh, most, if not all prophecies, uh, they say you. But it's very rarely the people that they are seeing. So for example, look at Isaiah 7:14. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive, shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So that was told at the time of Isaiah, 700 years before Christ. And the contemporaries, they never saw uh, the virgin birth. So it says, you were given a sign, but it's just a generic you for the people of God, and, and then it may happen uh, in the near future, it may happen in the far future. It doesn't actually uh, answer. This is uh, us who know, it actually happened much later. And it's very common, like, for example, in Deuteronomy 28, 36,
1: 49,
0: uh, it, it's talking about you. It's like, cursed you will you be in the country, cursed will you be, you will be taken by all nations, you will be this, you will be that. And when we have so that's the the Sermon of Moses, and he's sending them blessings, and then he tells them curses. And then the blessings, some of them, uh, they were given much later, not the you of their contemporaries. And then the the captivities, the curses, also uh, the first audience, for the most part, never saw those things. So what I'm saying is this. Those two arguments, they are inconclusive. The fact that it says you, or the fact that it says this generation, the context is going to determine the fulfillment is going to determine. It's not like a slam dunk. It's not an airtight. So with that in mind, then we go back. Uh, but, it, because, but I agree with this. I agree with what the, the preachers say. They say, this generation will not pass away until all those things are fulfilled. So what, he, what he's saying is this. The generation will not pass away until all these things are fulfilled. And R.C. Sproul makes a very good point. Jesus is tying up everything that he has discussed within one generation. And I think he's right. I think that's the plain meaning of the text. The question is, is this whole thing going there, or is this whole thing going there? And I just demonstrated, I believe, that it, it is in the future. We saw immediately after the tribulation of those days, in those days, this generation, it sure looks like it's a package. Um, Did I have something else to say on this? Uh, I think uh, we'll move on to the last part, we don't have a lot of time left, Uh, but essentially the last part is this, we are going now to page number five. And thank you, I know it's a lot, but uh, I just get one day so I really wanted to tell you uh, all of that, and uh, you have the notes so you can always review. So we we saw that the generation is the coming is future. I presented that I believe they are tied with the text. Now the question is when will that happen? So we see different time indicators in the text, and they are all here in this left column. There is the end of the age. There is the days of vengeance. In Luke it says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. It says, these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. The beginning of birth pains. This is not yet the end. These are but the beginning of birth pains. And then you keep going. There is the great tribulation. It's called the great tribulation. It's also said in in Luke. It says, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Here we go again. We have another time indicator, the times of the Gentiles. And then the last one, it says, the abomination of desolation. So when we look at every single one of these things, we will see that it's all future. So the first one is the end of the age. The Greek word is eon. Right? So what is the end of the age? It says at the beginning, that's their question. And the same word is used when Jesus says The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are angels. Which ties all back to what we read, when the angels separate people and they are judged. Or what about Jesus who said, Behold, I am with you always till the end of the eon. Jesus is saying, he's with us until he comes back. So there is clearly a usage here that talks about the end of the world. The days of vengeance. You remember when Jesus, in Luke 4, he goes to the the synagogue and he is given the scroll of Isaiah and he opens it to the to the page where it said the spirit of the Lord is upon me he has appointed me to preach the gospel and good news to the captives. Do you remember that? He's actually quoting Isaiah 61. And in Isaiah 61 the text says just that. And then he stops where it says preaching the gospel the deliverance to the captives and vengeance the days of vengeance. And Jesus everyone from all Uh, views on eschatology, they recognize that when Jesus preached and he stopped before quoting the vengeance path, he did that because it was his first coming. And he said, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And then he will come back to judge the world. So he purposefully, when he quoted Isaiah 61 in Luke 4, he did not say the days of vengeance because it was not the days of vengeance for his first coming, but as the days of vengeance for his second coming. Well, you see the text says, these are the days of vengeance. And it's also actually used in other passages. The days of vengeance in Isaiah 63, uh, 61 also. It says, To comfort the days of vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, and to grant to those who mourn in Zion, and they shall build an ancient, up the ancient ruins, and they shall raise up the form of devastations, of desolations. So, when the coming happens, the tribes of Israel are going to mourn because they will recognize him whom they pierced and they are going to be saved. You see, it says he's coming to save Zion. It's a different, different take from Jerusalem in 70 AD. The other thing is that in Luke 21, uh, it says these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that has been predicted. Were all the prophecies about end times and Israel fulfilled in 70 AD? They were not it has to be the future so we go to the beginning of birth pains and you can read this uh, but uh, uh, this one uh, if you read just the new testament look at this one first thessalonians 5 it says while they are saying peace and safety then sudden discar- destruction will come upon them like labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape and the context is about Christ coming on the cloud and people being judged you see the labor pains And uh, there is this general pattern, you know, it's called birth pains because it's intense and it's short. It's not as long as the, 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 the many months to have the baby grow. It's the short, and then it intensifies, and then you have the birth. And so there is the church history where, you know, we have all kinds of things, but it's not the end yet. And then there will be the tribulation. We have the birth pains that are intensifying. And then there is the birth of the kingdom with the resurrections that's what we saw in Matthew and the same term is used in uh, Acts two twenty four about Jesus being loosed from the pains of death uh, in his resurrection so you see the same thing Jesus suffers and then he is uh, he dies he's resurrected loosed from the pains of death the labor pains and then he has the birth of his spiritual kingdom so we have a very clear parallel right there if you look at the Old Testament Again, most passages that talk about birth pains, they are all future just before Christ comes. Um, And let's read just Jeremiah 30. So that's going to be on page 6. For behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord. I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. We have heard a cry of panic, of terror, and no peace. Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hand on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why has every face turned pale? Alas, this day is so great. Just pause right there, look at the next section. The great tribulation is called great tribulation, such tribulation, great distress upon the earth, and wrath against this people. This language of this day is so great, that's the the day of tribulation. So it says this, verse 7, Alas, that day is so great, there is no one like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob. Yet he shall be saved out of it. And then it talks about Christ, the king. So you see that Jacob is in distress. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. The time of tribulation for Jacob, the great tribulation. And he shall be saved out of it when Christ comes and sits on his kingdom. Let's talk about the great tribulation in the few moments we have. So it says, there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. When the Nazi attacked the Jews in the World War, That was worse than 70 AD. There were 6 million Jews that were killed. It was horrible. But the text says the tribulation is going to be worse than anything has ever, ever happened, no, ever will be. That's not 70 AD. All right. So one last thing. And you will be able to read about this in the text that I have right there but I'm just going to tell you uh, like this so it talks about the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel so and it says the Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled if you go to Revelation it's all in the notes it will say Jerusalem will be trampled for 42 months 1260 days and the Gentiles are mentioned in the context. So the trampling of Jerusalem is directly referenced in the book of Revelation, and it says it lasts 42 months. If you go to Revelation 12, you will see Israel giving birth to Jesus, and Israel is then going in the desert and is nourished and persecuted. So he's persecuted yet protected by God and nourished. And it says it's gonna last time, times, and half a time. And in the same chapter of, Je- of uh, Revelation 12, it says that she's gonna be nourished, and it's going to be for 1260 days. So what I just said is this. I just said that Israel is going to be persecuted for 42 months, which equates 1260 days, which is equated by John himself as time, times, and half time. Now, you have this expression, time, times, and half time. It's actually used by Daniel, which Jesus said, look at what Daniel said. And Daniel said, the abomination of destination will happen, and there will be time, times, and half a time where God allows the Jews to be trampled, and then Christ will come. And so when we, see, when we put that all together, we have this picture. In the future, from now, there will be seven years of intense persecution. And it will be escalating at the half point, where we have this half point of time, times, and half time, all, three and a half years. And at that time, it says the abomination of desolation will be in the temple, and he will sit. And when you read 2 Thessalonians 2, it says that he's the man of lawlessness. He's going to demand worship of himself. He's the Antichrist. And so he's going to be there, and he's going to persecute the Jews. He's going to break a covenant he's made with them. He's going to persecute them. And then it says, Christ will come, and he will destroy him and send him in the lake of fire. And I believe that's what this text is saying. I believe those uh, those are the indications from the passages and, um, and the main application from this text, and we will end on that he's saying, you must be ready and in the end, Christ wins, and redemption comes and he establishes his kingdom, and we have rewards, and that's the great joy so thank you so much for listening I know I talked a lot, I talked fast, mm-hmm. but uh, I, I have the notes for you guys, so let, let's pray, dear God we praise you, you are so good, so kind to us, and thank you for this time, and Lord, it was so difficult to study and uh, so many different things, but uh, I thank you for what you've taught me. I'm sure there is more to learn, uh, but you're good. Help us all to learn and uh, to review and to examine what has been said today and uh, see if those things are so in your word. And we thank you, and most of all, we, we rejoice in the second coming of Jesus Christ, who is the King, who has set all things right. And it says that they will see the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, And Lord, what a day we rejoice. And Maranatha. Amen.